WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. A big obstacle that doctors will face is diagnosing a disease. For example, when someone comes into the emergency room or the ER, they will first consider their symptoms. However, whenever it's a rare disease, it can be much more difficult for them to diagnose it. To tell us more about analyzing case reports like this, we're talking to Megan Carrillo. Megan, may you please introduce yourself and your research? Hi, everybody. My name is Megan Creo. I'm a fourth-year medical student at Michigan State University College of Osteopathic Medicine. I am about to graduate and am studying radiology. And my research dives into interesting cases and case reports where patients have been diagnosed with something that's pretty rare, but also issues surrounding bias let's say, bias with mental health and hospital workers, and also bias surrounding those with a history or current use of drug abuse. Thanks for joining us this morning, Megan. Regarding some of those diseases that can be sometimes diagnosed so late, what are some of the ones that you've come across in your research so far? Thank you for having me. One that sticks out to me that I remember was a patient who had come in and seen his doctor for a regular checkup because he was having a little bit of pain in his stomach. He thought maybe it was because of something he ate. It had been going on for a few days and he was also having some diarrhea. I'm I'm sorry to give that picture in your head, but that's what he came in with and what he presented with. And his doctor ran a few tests took some blood and saw that he had a high white blood cell count. And that's a marker for any signs of infection or sickness in the body. So he instructed the patient to go to the emergency room so they could do more extensive testing. And what they had found out once he came to the hospital was that he had a right-sided hernia that contained organs that are usually located on the left side of the body. So to paint that kind of picture in your head, a hernia is basically an outpouching when you have, I don't know if any of you have ever experienced a hernia or know someone who has, but it's basically when something that doesn't belong somewhere ends up there. So let's say you have two muscles and they're usually tight against each other. If they get kind of loose, maybe something that's supposed to be behind it, let's say part of your intestines, which are kind of long and loopy parts of your bowel that help with digestion. If that kind of pokes through the muscles, then that would be considered a hernia. And so what made this really interesting was that there's an organ that's located on the left side of your body, and that's called the sigmoid colon. Let's say you eat a lot, and before you use the bathroom, that's kind of where the food you've digested settles down and rests before you go to the bathroom. And that organ had herniated and went through an outpouching basically on the right side of his body, which is really interesting. And one other organ that ended up popping out was his urinary bladder. So I'm sure anyone can understand the feeling of having a really full bladder and having to go to the bathroom. So that organ that holds all of that ended up outpouching basically into this space. So that was a really rare occurrence and something really interesting, especially because the only complaint he had was that his stomach was hurting. That sounds like a very difficult condition to live with especially with the fact that their urinary bladder was not even in the place that it was supposed to be. How did the doctors go upon treating that? I would imagine that they would have to catheterize or put a tube in the patient so that their urine can empty their bladder. 
yes, that's exactly what they did. So they had to do that for the patient. And this is also something that the patient would have to have operated on. So the patient had to go to surgery. So the organs could get put back in the right place and they could stitch up the muscles where the organs were kind of peeking out and poking through. So the patient underwent surgery and made a full recovery and hopefully is doing well now. But the last I saw him, he was at the hospital and he was doing okay. Luckily, there's all these treatments that exist out there that can help alleviate the issues that come with these diseases. You talked a little bit about how there sometimes can be biases involved, though. How was bias playing a role in that diagnosis, and how do these biases come about? So with this patient, there wasn't exactly a bias such as lack of access to appropriate care, or he was seen by doctors and had a mental illness or drug abuse and the doctors didn't want to treat him. I think more of the bias that surrounded this one was ignorance about your own body and when you should seek treatment and care. So with him, he did have a fever. So he also had diarrhea and abdominal pain. And he had that for a few days. And I think whenever you have something like that, sure, the first thing you want to do is, okay, let me take some medicine that's over the counter that I could get at any drugstore. But if you do spike a fever, that means that there is signs of infection. So you should definitely see your doctor sooner. So with certain kinds of biases, and two of the ones I study being those surrounding any patient with mental health illness, mental health problems, and the other surrounding patient with any kind of history or current use of drugs, and how that bias and stigma comes about, I think plays a lot with how these people are interpreted in the media and the negative connotations that things like that have. So let's say a patient with a history of depression, history of anxiety, any kind of previous suicide attempt, anytime they go to the hospital and, and that's reported, that's always going to be in their chart. That's always going to be in their medical history. So the next time they go to the hospital, let's say they're complaining about abdominal pain or stomach ache. And the doctor and nurse and anyone on the care team goes and reviews their chart and they see, oh, this, this patient has psychiatric history. They have depression, anxiety, a previous suicide attempt. How do we go about treating them? Should we consult other doctors to take a look at this case? And I think that just stems from a lack of knowledge about these conditions and these kinds of patients. And the same with those patients who have a history of drug use or drug abuse. I think that all patients need to be treated equally. And even if a patient does have a history of drug use and abuse, that shouldn't steer you away from trying to treat them or make you think anything badly about them. If a patient's coming somewhere to receive care, then that's what they should get and that's how they should be treated. In your examples, whenever these patients are being referred to someone else, are the doctors still seeing them or do they not want to see them at all because of their mental health history or their drug history? For the most part, let's say if a patient presents to the emergency department and they do have a history of any kind of psychiatric illness, the emergency medical team and the psychiatric team will see them at the same time because First, they'll get a consult from the psychiatric team and say, okay, does this person need any kind of extra care or attention? 
does this person need to be admitted to the hospital? Meaning, you know, they can't go home after being seen in the emergency department, but they actually have to stay in the hospital. And so it's a group effort with different teams and different departments working together with the patient. But let's say if the patient is in serious need of help or is a risk to his or herself or others around them, then the psychiatric team will take over and then the patient will be admitted to the hospital. I would imagine that getting access to this data must take some sort of authorization that is involved due to different issues like HIPAA violations and making sure that anonymity is maintained. How are you performing your research to investigate the rise of biases in different medical diagnoses? All of the cases that I've written about or have researched more deeply into have actually been ones that I've seen at the hospital firsthand. So with one example being a case report on a 16-year-old patient that had the two really rare diseases and there was a lack of information surrounding her medical history because of her history of mental health issues and psychiatric illness and also because of her drug use. That patient was actually one I saw while I was on my pediatric rotation. So I was at Children's Hospital, and she was one that I actually saw and worked with. And we always have to seek permission to write any kind of case report or publication. That's something that I'm pretty sure all hospitals have to go through because patients are having their information put out there. Even though we're not publishing their name or anything like that, they still have to give permission about the information that they have on them within their charts, within their own medical history. So that's something we always have to gain. We have to get permission from the patients in order to write about them. So anything I've done or written about has always been a patient I've seen at the hospital and have gotten consent from. That makes a lot of sense to me. Whenever you're conducting these analyses and you have their consent, are you shadowing the doctor that's treating them or are you also allowed to talk to the patient and survey them and then maintain the privacy of the patients? So with these kinds of cases, it all kind of depends on the attending physician or the head doctor that you're working with. I was allowed to see the patient and talk to the patient and also being a medical student, I have access to the patient's charts and any kind of history that they have with the hospital system that they're in. And so with this patient, I was allowed to see her and speak with her with my attending physician. But with other case reports that I've worked on or have been working on, sometimes the attending physician prefers only he or she see the patient, and then I can do the research on their charts and their medical history and things like that. So it all kind of depends. But the most important thing, of course, is that we get consent from the patient. It sounds like it really enriches the experience of the medical student to be able to actually interact with real patients and describe the kinds of issues that they're dealing with, as well as trying to understand how can we help them. In some of the cases that you've been looking at that deal with these rare diseases, what are some of the instruments and techniques that are used to identify and diagnose for them? That's a really good question. So it all depends on what the patient's presenting with because it all starts with a good history. So you ask the patient questions kind of to lead you to what are the next things you should do. And then, of course, a physical exam. So With the one that I gave, the example being the 16-year-old with the two rare diseases, she had presented with a really long history of vomiting that she couldn't stop, really bad abdominal pain. So, of course, the first thing to do was an abdominal exam. So that includes listening with a stethoscope, the tool that's usually used to listen to your heart. 
listening to the different parts of the abdomen, also pressing, feeling, listening. And with that seeming normal, the next thing to do would be to get some kind of imaging done. So with this disease, we had a CT scan ordered with contrast. And I don't know if either of you or anyone you know has gotten a CT scan before, but it's basically where you're lying flat on a board and then there's a really long picture that's taken of whatever the, the doctor and the team is trying to look at a little more closely. And it looks kind of like a big donut that's rotating around you. And so we just tell patients, okay, you're going to go to the donut. But with that kind of study, you're able to take a look inside of the patient, which is a really big part of radiology. You know, you can tell a lot from a patient by just doing a physical exam, asking them questions, but you can't really know what's going on inside the body unless you take a look, right? So any kind of imaging like CT scan, x-rays, those are all really important in finding any kind of disease, I think. Yeah, it really helps doctors to be able to see what's happening inside of the patient. What's also useful is for them to analyze their blood, their saliva, urine, and other things like that. We've had episodes before, for example, with tuberculosis, where they've told us that it takes weeks to be able to diagnose that and then months to treat it afterwards. What are some common timescales that are associated with diagnosing some of these rare diseases and the treatments? So with this patient, she had the CT scan done while she was in the hospital. And with any kind of imaging, like a CT, MRI, for the most part, it could take a day or maybe up to two days to read it and then to get the results back to the team that ordered it. So then they can then relay that information to the patient and any other team members involved. And the important thing with this one and with the scan that she had done, the CT scan, the turnaround time was pretty quick because the patient was in the hospital. So they labeled it as, you know, something more important to get the results in sooner compared to, let's say, you, get, you have hand pain, for example, or wrist pain, and you go and get an x-ray of your wrist. And, you know, that could take a few days to get back and to get read because it's not, if they don't think it's broken or if they don't think it's as serious, they'll take time to get the, the information back to you or the turnaround times longer. So with this patient, it took a day or two for the scan to be done and then the information to be read and then relayed back to the team. But for the most part, the turnaround time for any kind of radiologic imaging that's done within the hospital is relatively quick, especially in the emergency department. Let's say they order an x-ray because they think something might be broken in the chest and they label it as, okay, please get this done as soon as you can. Then the team or the radiologist reading it will get it done within the hour sometimes. So it all kind of depends on the severity and how quickly you need the results back. I hope that people that are listening to this episode come to understand that while there are many negative connotations that are associated with radiation, there are actually several benefits to using radiation, actually, that we use all over the world, not only just in medical purposes, but also in industry as well as agriculture. Getting back to the case studies that you're working on, when it comes to the research, are you grouping these case studies together to try and understand maybe some sort of pattern that's evolving from this? So right now, I'm looking at each case uniquely and in and of itself, just because they've been at different hospitals with different age groups, different kind of disease processes and presentations. But the second thing you mentioned about grouping them together and seeing if there are any patterns because of, let's say, delay in diagnosis, was that because of what I'm interested in, like the issues surrounding and the stigma surrounding mental health or drug use? That's definitely something that I want to pursue once I have enough case reports done. Done, if that makes any sense. 
But absolutely, I think that would be awesome to end up doing, hopefully doing a big report on all of the ones I've done and seeing if there is any kind of pattern, which maybe there is. And that's what I'm thinking, but we'll see what the research shows eventually. I think it's really important for us to break these biases. Do you have any recommendations for how medical practitioners can reduce their bias? And how do you keep your own bias out of the analysis of these case studies? So the important thing for me whenever I'm looking at these case studies and I want to keep my own bias in check is to always look at it with fresh eyes and remind myself, okay, I am somebody who's studying bias and that can't be done if I myself am projecting my own bias onto these case studies and these case reports. So it's always that constant reminder telling myself, you can't look at a patient differently because they have X, Y, and Z in their history. You can't look at a patient differently if they're abusing any kind of drug right now because that's unfair, right? Because with anything in your history, my history, we wouldn't want to be judged or have a different kind of treatment or care just because we're different, right? And so I always keep that in mind when I'm looking at these cases and telling myself no bias because it's harmful to the patient and to our community. Exactly. It can be extremely harmful to the community, especially those from marginalized communities. With regards to medical practitioners, what are some strategies that professionals can use to manage their own biases, especially those that are implicit within their subconscious? So I think the first step and one of the most important things to do is to recognize that you do have implicit bias. And the way to overcome it is through education. So educating yourself most importantly, there are certain quizzes that you could take online to check if you are biased, but there are also ones that if you really think about it, you might have already. So I could just use an example from the hospital that I've seen experienced, and that would be the one surrounding those with any kind of mental illness in their history. A patient could have a history of depression from 10 years ago, and all of a sudden the physician sees that and they don't know how to act around the patient or they're afraid to go and talk to the patient. But in reality, they should just see the patient, right, and see how they're doing first before having that bias affect their whole care and treatment plan. And I'm not saying that the history isn't important, but I'm saying it shouldn't change how you act around the patient in a negative way or in a way that is different from the way you would treat any other patient. So educate yourself. That's really important. And also learn from others around you. I agree, Megan. The work that you do is very interdisciplinary. You mentioned that your degree in osteopathic medicine is focused in radiology. What would you specifically like to do whenever you graduate? For example, would you like to work with nuclear physicists or would you like to work with diagnosing patients? So with my passion for radiology and with me pursuing that as my residency of choice, I am really interested in using it to help diagnose patients. And one of the really big things that I want out of that as my career is teaching people what they can do with what they read on a scan or any kind of radiologic film or imaging. A lot of people think that with radiology, you just look at any kind of scan or image, make a report on what you see, and then send it off, and then you're done with it. But some people don't realize the impact of what you see can make on a patient's life, because there's a lecture that I attended recently talking about how important it is if you see, let's say, a history of fractures on a patient, man, woman, or child, that's a sign that they could be experiencing abuse, right? And that's something that you should bring attention to. 
And let's say you see that in a child, child abuse, right? And that's something you have to talk about. So I think the important thing is, okay, what else can we do with what we see, right? What's an impact we could make to help better these patients? And that's what I really want out of radiology as a career. Yeah, I can understand that in the sense that not many people really appreciate just how much work is involved with radiology between managing the radioactive sources, operating the machine, interpreting the results, which I think it's great that you want to focus on being able to be that expert that can convey what is going on, where the tumor or other kind of disease is located within the body. And I think we need more people that are going to be focused on this kind of technology in the future as it becomes more advanced. Thank you so much, Megan, for joining us today to talk to us about your impactful research. Good luck with the rest of your degree, and I hope that you're able to match somewhere to do this radiology. Thank you both so much for having me on here. It's been a pleasure to talk about radiology and how much it means to me, and hopefully I'll be talking to you both again in the future. Thanks so much. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. To hear more about us and learn more about our episodes, check out scifiles.org. If you're a current MSU student that would like to be interviewed, please reach out to us at scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll catch you next week on the Sci-Files, and remember, the truth is in the science.